Hey, y'all. I'm, my name is Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan Nash. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship. Really good to be here this morning. Um, I have been on staff with Midtown since about 2014. Um, I've known Elliot and Daryl and the guys and gals here at 12 South uh, for a long time. Really, really pleased to be here this morning. If I haven't met you, I'm the congregational pastor of our Napier congregation and uh, run our congregation there in community development ministry in Napier. Um, Those are the annual reports that you're sitting on probably. Uh, We are going to take a look at that and I'm gonna talk a little bit more about our Napier ministry after the, or toward the end of the service. But I'm here to preach. Uh, Elliot's out of town and Daryl's out of town. So they asked me to come fill in and I'm I'm really excited to do that. And I think you'll see and you'll find that um, this passage that we're in in Genesis um, not only speaks such a good word to our tired hearts, uh, but also sets us up really well to hear a little bit about what the Lord's doing in the city through Midtown, and in particular, what I'm, I've been blessed to get to do in Napier. So we're going to jump in. We're in the book of Genesis, uh, so you can go and turn there. It's easy. It's right at the beginning. We are in chapter two. We made it out of chapter one. Uh, I promise we'll, we'll speed up a little bit because there's about 50 chapters in Genesis, so it's going to take us a little while to get through if we're going at this pace, but there's something... Um, just as you're turning to Genesis 2, there, there's something that is such a gift that the Lord gives us, and it's kind of hidden in this chapter, this section in Genesis chapter 2. Um, and I really believe, I, I, don't, I, I don't say this every time I preach, even though I believe that what I'm about to say is true every time. I also believe there's just times when we get the chance in the Word of God to hear something that's so personally needed to us, um, our place in time, our place in history, um, that we can't help but just say, thank you, Lord. And I think this morning is one of those times. And so um, I'm gonna challenge you that if, if you open your heart and let the Holy Spirit speak, um, you, will not leave here cha- uh, you will not leave here the same uh, after this, this word. Um, it's, it's that beautiful and it's that powerful and we need it deeply. I can promise you that I know I need it deeply. I've realized how much I've needed it even this morning. So before I read our passage, I want you to think of this idea um, because it's the idea that really controls this whole little, very beautiful artistic passage in Genesis 2. Um, and it's, it's the idea of a frame. So we, we use frames a good bit. Um, we, we frame pictures, right? Uh, you've got pictures in your house that are in a frame. Um, we also frame concepts and ideas. Like, like we'll say something like, um, let, me, let me frame it this way, right? And then we'll, we'll begin to explain this concept. Um, we frame houses. We put frames around houses. And what a frame is, whether it's the, the border or uh, the frame of a painting or the frame of another piece of art or the frame of an idea, is it's setting something apart, right? Like if you've got a wall and you put a picture on it, the frame of that picture tells your eye literally visually like, hey, this is something that's, that's bounded. It has a boundary and a border to it and it sets it apart as, as a little bit different. And in particular in art, which is a creative process, and, and, and this should make sense and we should pay attention to this because Genesis chapter one and, and then even now in Genesis chapter two is all about creation. God, the creator, And in the creative process in art, frames are super powerful because what a frame does in art is it sets it apart so we take notice of it. And it might even be something really, uh, you know, normal. 
Like the Mona Lisa, the most, the most famous painting you could argue in all of history is, is a very normal person, a very normal face, a very normal portrait. But it's so artistically done that this frame around it, it, it reminds us, oh, wait a second, I better give this a second look. The frame draws your attention, it draws your eye or it draws your ear if the piece of art is music. It draws your mind to something, even something ordinary, and that makes it special. By noticing it, it can take on, if we have the eyes to see, a greater significance. And what we begin to see is the inherent significance, the inherent purpose, the inherent beauty, or the inherent value in something. All words that I know matter very deeply to each of us. Let's give it a try. I'm gonna give you a piece of art with a frame. You ready? An old silent pond. Into the pond, a frog jumps, splash, silence again. That is one of the oldest uh, Japanese haikus that we have. And a haiku is a piece of art. It's this little, tiny, little poem. And it talks, that one in particular, talks about something very ordinary, right? Just a, an old silent pond. But by looking at it, all of a sudden now, every one of us has some image. It's probably different for all of you of this pond and this frog and the noise of it splashing. And then this image of just the pond going silent again. It's beautiful, isn't it? That is a framed piece of work, a framed piece of art that, that allows us to look at something and maybe consider it for a second time and gives it significance and value. Genesis 2 is here this morning to tell you that Jesus or God, in the, the creator God in this story, created us to set us apart for something, to frame our lives within a boundary. And it was in that place, right, in the frame where he poured his love, which gave us significance and purpose and beauty and value and all these things. I'm sure this morning we are a little bit tired because we've been striving after. So let's look at Genesis chapter two and see how it does this. So Genesis chapter two, we're gonna start in verse eight. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God created us and he put us in a frame like a master artist with his most beautiful master art, with his Mona Lisa, he created mankind, man and, man and woman, male and female. 
but he didn't just create them. What this chapter and this section of Genesis tells us is he created us to set us apart for something, to put us within a frame. And it was in this place, in this set apart area, physically the Garden of Eden, but also in all kinds of other ways, he poured his love on this most important part of his creation, the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman. And what better frame than a garden? All right, confession, how many of you planted a garden at some point during COVID, 2020, 2021, 2022, anybody? Anyone decide now is a great time to dabble in this? Oh, there's some less than truthful people in this room. I'm sure there was more of you. How many of you actually still have it? How many is it still? Okay, all right. Illustration fails, but <laughs> a garden, guys, a garden is a frame. You get that? It's, it's setting apart a very ordinary piece of dirt. Maybe it was grass in your yard and you just say, you know what? We're gonna put a garden here. And the first thing you do when you build a garden is you have to build the boundary because you're saying that inside this place is something different than outside. Before it was just grass. Before it was just wild part of your yard. Now it's gonna produce something, right? It's gonna have a purpose. You got it? It's gonna have significance. It's gonna have value. It's gonna have beauty. You're gonna fill it with beautiful flowers or wonderfully tasting fruit or vegetables that bring health. So that garden becomes a frame in your yard. It says here that God planted a garden and it was this place that he decided to put the most important the most beautiful, the most significant, the most set apart of his creation of all the wonderful things he created, he put his most important, the most special to him in this frame, in this garden. And I like to think, it's not super clear here, but I like to think in the language of this, this passage, it says that the Lord God planted a garden. And I like to think that means he literally like by hand planted a garden. He didn't like go to the garden store and get a garden. He didn't say, you know what? Let there be a garden. It could have said that, but it says he planted it. I like to think he got down on his hands and knees and he took those seeds. If you remember from Genesis one, it says, God created every plant that bears seed according to its kind. And it talks about the fact that he created these biological processes of nature for plants to produce a seed that then fall to the ground to make more plants. This is like God saying in Genesis two, all right, let me, let me like take this puppy on a test drive, this new creation. And I'm gonna take these seeds and I'm gonna, I'm gonna set apart this piece of dirt and I'm gonna tend it and I'm gonna plant it. And what springs up is the Garden of Eden. And it's this amazing frame for his beautiful work of art to live in. And so he puts man and woman in this garden. In this passage, we haven't actually gotten to the creation of Eve yet. So it talks about he put the man but we know Adam and Eve were both in the garden. So this is all of his human creation God intended to be in this garden. And we know that Eve was there. And out of the ground, every tree that's pleasant to the sight and every good plant for food springs up. This is God's love creating this frame for his creation. And then this section here about the rivers that are a little odd, it kind of feels like, what are these places? What are these rivers? Why does it say there's gold in this one place? What that's trying to say and what it would have said very clearly to the Israelites, you know, who were reading this for the first time is that this was a land unlike any land that they'd seen before. You know, they were in Egypt right before they got this, this you know, received this word from God. All they had experienced was desert. All they had experienced was anything that good comes from backbreaking slave labor. That's all they knew. 
But this is a land where rivers themselves flow, where the ground is watered from the ground up. They don't have to wait for rain. These rivers literally have their source in this garden. So the very ground itself is just wet with water coming up from the rivers and it's flourishing. This is a picture of life, unhindered, uninhibited, unsuppressed life flourishing. And man and woman are put there. They're put within this frame to live, to not be pushed down, to not be kept back, to have everything that they need. And it even says, you know, there that they were given good work to do, that man and woman were put in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So it's, it's fullness is the picture that we're given. But, or and, there's a second element to this frame that's super important and that's mind-blowing in this passage. And some of you, if you did your small groups this past week and studied this, it probably is the thing that might've stuck out to you. And maybe you and your small group had some, some kind of wrestling with this. And it's the fact that within this garden that kind of makes sense to us, it's a beautiful place, you know, all these plants, it's flourishing. Yeah, I'd love to live there. But there's also this kind of weird element of this command about a tree, right? All the trees of the garden you can eat from, but God says there's one that you can't, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it seems kind of strange. Like, why is that in there? That doesn't, that doesn't seem to fit with the rest of this garden, especially if you know the Christian story, you know what happened. This is the tree. That's the apple, right? Where it all fell apart. So why is it there? Well, let me tell you this. The fact that God gave a command, and it really could have been anything. It didn't have to be, don't eat from that one tree, even though that's what God chose to do. And that's the story. It could have been, you know, don't pick up that rock or don't go to this one little corner of the garden. Could have been any command, but the fact that God gave a command to Adam and Eve tells us something about Adam and Eve and about the human creation. If you remember, the human creation was the only part of God's creation that it is said of, they were made after God's own image. And what the fact that God gave a command to them tells us is that part of being made in God's image, and this is true for you and me, this is a huge revelation, is that man, unlike anything else, has a will. Because if someone is given a command, if it's a real command, if it's not a joke, if it's a real command, what does that mean? What necessarily has to be true? That you have the chance to not follow that command, right? God gives something to Adam and Eve that he doesn't give to any of his other creation. He doesn't tell the animals, do all this, but don't do that because they don't have a will. Not the way mankind does, but only to Adam and Eve does God say, live in this garden, flourish in this garden, have, have the best life imaginable in this garden, uninhibited, but don't do this. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what that tells us is that God created us with the will the will to obey him or not, the will to love him or not. That's totally different than any of the other parts of God's creation. Why does that matter? Because will is inherent to love. There has to be will involved. There has to be decision. There has to be agency involved in true love. Am I right? What if I say it this way? Is forced love real love? No, no. 
No one in their right mind would say that love that's forced is real love. There might be love that's forced that looks like something else, right? That looks like submission, looks like all kinds of twisted things. True love has to be willful. It doesn't exist without the will to want it and choose it, which means it also has to exist with the will to decide no. No one in their right mind would say that forced love is real love. It has to be willful. It has to be of your own volition. And so if man were created without a will, then there wouldn't be true love between God and man. Do you see what we learn about God in that truth? That it was so important to God, who by the way, scripture says, is love. He is the source of love. True love is in himself. And so if he wanted to give a creation that could engage with him with true love, then will had to be a part of it, which also means the will to choose not to love him. So God created Adam and Eve, poured his love onto them, put them in a place surrounded by examples of his love, where they were experiencing the love of their creator, the handmade love of the Garden of Eden. And they were also given commands to love him of their own will. Their significance, their purpose, their beauty, their value, it all came in their relationship with God. And for it to be authentic, God said, I want you to choose it. Well, if we know the story, what happened? They chose not to love God, didn't they? Of their own will, Adam and Eve chose to listen, not to God, but to Satan, to the serpent. This enemy of God, who by the way, also chose at some point not to love God. The devil came to Adam and Eve, and we're not gonna talk about Genesis 3, although we will in a couple weeks, but to connect it to this story and to understand why it's so important about the Garden of Eden and the will of God of, of man and, and the call to obedience, we have to understand that when Adam and Eve chose to not love God, when they said no, when Eve took that apple and Adam and Eve ate of that apple and they listened to the lie of the devil, then they chose not to love God. They used their will to say no. Do you remember what it was that the serpent did with Eve first and then with Adam? Do you remember the very first words out of the serpent's mouth? It was a question. He came to Eve and he said, did God really say? Right, how, how powerful are those kinds of leading questions? You ever done that with somebody? You walk up, it's like, I don't know, you know, just kind of drop a little question. It's manipulative, isn't it? Because what does it do? It forces, it, it, it causes someone's mind to go to a certain place. What the devil wanted to do was to pick at this will that Eve had, which means there was a, a chance that Eve could say no to the love of God. And he inserted doubt. He inserted doubt, even though everything else in Eve's existence only spoke to the love of God. There was nothing evil in the garden. There was nothing harmful in the garden. There was, there was no limits in the garden that weren't for her good. And yet the devil dropped a seed of doubt that asked Eve, that offered Eve the chance to think maybe God is not who he said he is. Maybe all of this, as good as it is, maybe it's a farce. Maybe there's something better. And we know if we keep reading in Genesis 3, 
The devil is encouraging Eve to think, maybe God just doesn't want you to be like him. What you'll get if you eat of this tree is you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, which was never something God intended Adam and Eve to have. Okay, so let's back up a second. God puts Adam and Eve in a frame. It's beautiful, it's perfect. It's for them to experience his love. And what happens is Adam and Eve say no. They say no to those boundaries. They say more. I want more. I want something different because I don't deeply trust you, God. And so from then on, we have lived in a bent. One of my favorite authors calls our world right now a busted Eden. We now all live in a busted Eden. And you wanna know what happens in the busted Eden and the bent Eden and the twisted Eden is every single one of us now has the same temptation to use our will to say no to the love of God. We now live with this engine, y'all. We're like hell on wheels. This, this deep drive to bust out of the, the, the frame or the boundary that God has given us. And we say more. We say, no, I don't wanna live within the time God has given me. I don't wanna live within the boundaries of my family. I don't wanna live within the boundaries of my marriage. I don't wanna live within the boundaries of the job God's given me. I don't wanna live within the boundaries of Fill in the blank. And we say, not enough. And you know what drives that engine? It's the same thing that drove Adam and Eve's engine. Fear, doubt, disbelieving in our hearts that God is enough for us, that his fathership of us, his parenting of us, his love for us, his care for us is enough. We doubt it. We don't believe it. And eventually we say we don't want it. And so we look at the boundaries God has given us, his calling to obedience, the law of God, and just the places he's put us in, the, the, the little, however busted, the little gardens of Eden that we have, and we look at them and we say no. So what that means is that a good definition of sin, a very basic definition of sin is just an innate distrust in the love of God. And by the way, you don't really have to choose it. Let's talk about will for a second, right? If we see will, then we wanna talk about free will. Well, what about when our hearts themselves, the will of our hearts is not to trust the Lord. Then I'm not saying you wake up every day saying, man, not today, I'm definitely gonna not trust God today. Now it just happens. It's just, a, it's just like a gravitational pull of our hearts. It's why we can be so grateful that Adam and Eve weren't the last human beings to give a chance at obeying God. Because after Adam, scripture says in Romans that there was a second Adam. There was someone else who came, who chose to live, who had the will and chose to live within the bounds that God had given him. And his name was Jesus. Jesus came as the second Adam and guess what he did? He took on our frame to use that kind of old English word for our bodies. It's the word frame, right? The frame. He took on a human frame. He came to live within a human frame. He existed in the suffering of the world that our unwillingness to live in God's frame caused. He stepped into that and he obeyed God. There's this fascinating passage in the book of John where Jesus says, I have not come to do my own will, 
but to do the will of him who sent me. Which is crazy, almost makes God sound schizophrenic. And that's the, that's the you know, mystery of the Trinity. But God himself, Jesus, the son of God, God himself said, I'm not gonna live with my own will, which means part of Jesus being fully human is he had a will. He wasn't a robot. He had the same will that Adam and Eve have, and yet he chose to submit his will to the will of his father. So he could say, I haven't come to do my own will, but I do the will of him who sent me. In other words, I submit to the frame God has put me in, which we know also involves suffering. So Jesus came as the second Adam to obey the law of God, to live within the frame of God, and then to free us to be back in the garden. That is the message of Christianity, that if you know Jesus this morning, you through Jesus can be brought back to the garden. But it's even better than that because there is no garden anymore. The garden's gone. There's no getting back to the garden of Eden, right? The Pishon and the whatever they are, right? Those rivers, we don't know where they are, right? So what's the garden? Well, what does Jesus say? He says, I'm going, but I'm gonna return and I'm gonna make my home inside of you. So through a relationship with Jesus, who through his death and resurrection is the new expression of the love of God. He's the new garden. He comes to dwell in you. He says, I make my home in you, which means he makes the garden of Eden in you. That we have something, you have something that Adam and Eve never had. We have the chance to have the garden of Eden come and live inside of us where it will never go away. If you have Jesus, his presence and the flourishing he offers you as great as the flourishing of the garden of Eden with rivers of life can be present in you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. When Jesus talks to the woman at the well, what does he say? If you drink of this water, you will never be thirsty again because from this water will well up in you a what? A spring of living water. You see the connection to the garden, all these rivers flowing out of the garden. Jesus is saying the source of those rivers of life are now gonna be inside of you because they're me. That the garden of Eden isn't a garden anymore for us. It's a person that we have a relationship with where the love of God now comes to dwell with us. But like Adam and Eve, our wills are still active. And so even though Jesus has made his home in you, if you know him, if you have asked him into your heart, right? As we say to our kids, then he comes and dwells in you, but you still have the daily battle of whose will are you gonna serve? So if you wanna know, hey, pastor, how do I live with the garden of Eden in my heart? Because I'm pretty tired. I'm pretty anxious. I'm pretty worn down. Every day kind of feels like a climb up a mountain. Doesn't really feel like hanging out in a garden. So how do I get it back? Well, we get it back by submitting our wills to the will of our father. We get it back by giving Jesus dominion over our lives again. We give it back through asking him and then living in such a way every day to allow him and to ask him and to partner with him to reset the frame for us to reset the frame of the Garden of Eden. And he is available to do that. He's ready to do that. He wants that. I've been thinking about it. I don't know where this image came from, but it's been helpful for me. 
you know, the, the Bible talks about the love of God like an ocean, right? The weightiness, the depth, the breadth, the scope of the ocean is the closest picture we can have for the love of God. But we are like people who live building a dam between us and the ocean of God. That I don't wanna, I don't wanna live because it requires you know, violating the sinful part of my will. I don't wanna live soaking in the ocean of God's love. I don't wanna live inside his garden. So what I do is I start putting these blocks that start to build a dam. I mean, imagine if you've ever seen the Hoover Dam, if you've ever been to the bottom of it, I mean, it literally towers over you and the depth of the water behind it is all on the other side. And we can live that way. We can live saying no to the Lord in all of his boundaries that he sets on us. We say no to the frame, which is the boundary that he's put on us. We say no to that boundary in how we use our time. Talk about that in a second. In how we use our bodies. We, we say no to God's boundaries in the way we do our work and what we're striving for. We do it with our money. We do it with the talents that he's given us, the, the gifts that he's given us. We say no to using them in the way that he is offering us to use them and calling us to use them. And we're building these walls between us and the love of God. And he's saying, let me break that down. Get back in the garden with me. Open your eyes to the fact that I've come to dwell in you. When Jesus died on the cross, it says he died on a tree, right? Specifically calls the cross a tree. So Jesus went through not the flourishing of life in the garden, but the suffocation of life on that hill that we call Golgotha where he hung on that tree and his hanging on the tree of death, as it were, became a way for us to experience the tree of life again. And you know what it says about the blood of Jesus flowing as he died on that tree? It says they were like rivers, like rivers of life. So when you have accepted the death of Jesus for you, that means you get flooded by the life of Jesus and his love. And it comes through giving your submission to God. Submitting then to the boundaries, to the place that he's put you. So let's talk about a couple of those just real quick. What about time? I'm gonna call this one out just because this is the one I, I wrestle with. Uh, speaking of wrestling, I used to do jujitsu. So follow me here for a little illustration. So in jujitsu, it's sort of like wrestling. It's this kind of tactical game of grappling and matching strength with somebody and positioning your body in such a way. A lot of the UFC fighters have a, have a base in jujitsu. So when I was doing jujitsu as a novice, the thing I realized pretty quickly, probably the very first time you'll get on the mat with someone in jujitsu, is if they're more experienced than you, the most dangerous place you're in is when you're trying to go in for the attack. When you try to move and control the situation, all they gotta do when they know a lot more than you is just wait, and then they just take you down, right? They get you, they get you locked in something. They put you in an arm bar, or they get you in a chokehold. When we live our lives with that kind of wrestling, controlling, attacking way, which by the way, comes from fear, comes from that fear of I'm not gonna be enough. God isn't enough for me. I'm not gonna be okay. Whatever it is, just like Adam and Eve did. When we live in response to that with like a grappling taking, then what life does is it then begins to take us down. So in time, when I live my life like grappling to eat every minute out of the day, when I'm always looking for like, how do I, how do I like optimize my day so I can fit more in? When I rage against people that make demands on my time, 
right? Which oftentimes are the people closest to you that you love the most. In other words, when life just doesn't go your way and things don't go the way you want to in a day, that's the, the point when you're the most, uh, when it's the most dangerous. It's the point when you're at the most risk. And we do that with so many things. We wanna control our time. We wanna control our jobs. We could talk about it that way. When we're not resting and saying, Lord, teach me, tell me through what's going on in this situation, how you want me to live, where the boundaries and limits are in my life. When we try to grapple it away or take it down, it's gonna take us down. And I think it's why many of us would say, yeah, life kind of feels like I'm in a chokehold a lot of times. Kind of hard to breathe in this place when I have built up so many things for myself that are outside the frame, the garden that God has called me to live in. We talk about our bodies and sex in this case. This is why God created man for a marriage between a man and a woman, for monogamy, for commitment. It's a boundary, all right? It's a frame, but it's a frame within which God is saying, just wait for me to pour out the depth of my love, the ocean of my love for you. We could of course talk about it with our money, right? The thing that we probably the most struggle to say, oh, that, that's, that's mine, right? And to not say, Lord, that's yours, that's a gift. And whatever it is, because I, I, I can't answer those questions for you. I can answer them for me though. What are the places where you're bucking against and, and wrestling against the frame that God has put you in? Whatever it is, there's two things that come when you begin to submit to the Lord. The first is protection and the second is freedom. Because when I live within the frame God has given me, he protects the things that are most precious. They're like wedding vows. I did a marriage a couple weeks ago and when that husband and wife gave their vows to each other, they were saying no to a lot of other things, right? They're saying yes to each other was saying no to everybody else. They're saying yes to commitment to each other was saying no to that kind of commitment to everybody else. They were protecting something within a frame called a covenant of marriage where they could actually live together and flourish. God is asking us to, and he's inviting us to feel his protection of things that are the most important in all areas of our life when we submit to him. And then secondly, within that frame, when we submit to him, it gives us freedom. Because now that the most important things are protected, guess what? We can live dangerously. We can actually run hard. We can actually strive hard for the hardest things because the most beautiful things are protected. That my life can actually be a life of flourishing, of vibrant, unsuppressed living because I've said no to the things that God has not given me and I've said yes to the beautiful garden that he wants to put me in. So the Christian life begins to look like a pretty ordinary Christian life at that point where we obey God. We read his word and try to figure out, Lord, what is the law? What is the frame? What is the boundary that you've called me to live into? And it comes from here. And it also comes from here. It comes from the community that we're in, the church we're a part of, the small group that we're in. These are all places where the Lord is saying, let me paint for you a picture of this beautiful frame where you get to live as my amazing work of art and you live a life of flourishing. So 
when I was uh, down on the mat, gasping for breath, you know, the 10th time uh, after getting taken down in jujitsu, one of the things you learn really quick to do is let go. You learn to tap. You quit striving once you've gotten in a headlock and your oxygen is being, uh, you know, slowly asphyxiated. You let go. And if life feels kind of like a headlock right now, um, if you're worn down, if you're kind of gasping for air, uh, it's a pretty good sign God is saying, let go. Let go, not because I'm trying to hurt you. Let go because you're trying to hurt you. And I have something better for you. So I invite you uh, into that exploration this week. Um, I told you that if you take this passage seriously, it will change your life. If we begin to submit to the love of our Father, that's just as perfect for us as it was for Adam and Eve, even though we have messed it up so badly. When you submit to that, um, it's life-changing on the other side. So that's what I invite you to as a church, and we're gonna spend a little bit of time uh, in worship and confession um, to do just that. So let me pray for us. Jesus, I, uh, just in a moment of sanity, um, thank you for the limits that you've put in my life. I thank you for my family. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for this job as a pastor. Um, I thank you for the city that I live in. I thank you for the community that you've called me to, to live in and labor for. Lord, I confess every one of those things on a daily basis feels like a burden or feels like a boundary that I wanna get out of. It's like, a, like, a, like I'm a horse in a corral and all I wanna do is run through the gate. Lord, that's sin. It's plain and simple. And, it, and it's, it's just me not seeing, not having eyes to see the beauty uh, the, the fullness of the life that you've given me within the frame of your word and your law and the frame of, our, of my community, the frame of this life that you've given me. And so, Lord, I confess that. I ask um, for my friends that we would all be able to, to begin to engage with that and with no shame, but with full open hearts and a desire to, to breathe again, Lord, um, take us on that journey. Um, Lord, thank you that your love is a weighty, weighty ocean, but it's a place that you've uh, called us to soak and swim and find life. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.